I've been thinking about a lot of things. Of course, this is Lent, and uh, we are, we're going through and trying to understand Lent from this other point of view. And as I was thinking about this morning, a, a story from my past came to mind. And uh, it was back uh, shortly after I was ordained, and I got to do about a sermon a quarter or something like that. They would, they would uh, with great trepidation, let me come up to the pulpit. And uh, this one time I went up there, and what I did was, is I went through the golden rule, and I don't know if you know this, but it exists in just about every faith tradition on earth. And so I read the golden rule in all these different formulations, and uh, I thought it was so cool because it just reaffirmed this truth that Jesus is giving us, you know? So I thought it was really great. Afterwards, the senior pastor came up to me and just looked at me and said, why would you do that? (laughs) You know, and and I realized, okay, he's he's coming from a, a very different point of view. He he saw this as diminishing Jesus, and I saw it as reaffirming the profound, deep nature of Jesus' truth. That it just comes from, I don't know, it comes out of the igneous rocks or something. I mean, it just it comes up out of the pores, and it is so true. It is foundational. And so to hear it in these other faith traditions, to me, was affirming. It was life-affirming. It was faith-affirming. And it erases the dividing lines that we put between us and others, between us and other traditions. And we realize that even with our differences, most of which are intellectual, there is so much more that binds us together as people, as children of God. And so, there's really nothing to fear in a journey toward truth, if you think about it. What the pastors were telling me is, be careful, you don't get led into error. But what I realized was that if I really desire truth, if I'm going for truth, I've been promised that I'm going to find it. And so there's nothing to fear as we go out in a journey for truth, except (laughs) the death, the loss of our own belief system of our own convictions, whatever it is that we have come to believe. Because as we go out there and we really are looking for truth, everything is going to be challenged that we think we know. And that's a really good thing, but a really painful thing. And you have to be ready for it. You have to be ready for the death of everything that you think you know if you're really going to be able to take this journey that Jesus is talking about. Between uh, my, the Catholicism of my youth and the evangelicalism of my 30s, uh, I was in kind of a spiritual hinterland for, for 15 years or so. And as I was searching for something that made sense, because I thought Christianity had been there and done that, one thing that I got really fascinated was, uh, with was Taoism, which is the, the Chinese philosophy. And Tao in Chinese literally means the way. And it means the way in almost exactly the same way that Jesus means the way. When he talks about the Urha in, in Aramaic, this, this way to the Father. And not only that, as I came back to Christianity with this experience of what Taoism was about, I realized that the Logos, the Logos of John, is exactly the same understanding in Greek. The Tao, the way, the Urha, the Logos of Greek, all means this substance, this essence, this underlying reason or urge or cause into existence. This is the the basic piece of life, the basic 
building block of creation. And they're trying to express it in some way that makes sense. But the idea here is that if you recognize, if you become aware of this logos, this word, this way, you can begin to flow with it. And the way the Chinese put it is wei wu wei, which literally means do not do. It's the idea of an effortless action. You know, it's, it's as you move. I know I've used this analogy before. How many of you have been in a hot air balloon? Anybody? Okay. First time I went in a hot air balloon, only time I went in a hot air balloon. I was shocked. <laughs> no, it was actually, it was fine. Just never got around to doing it again. I expected to go up in this hot air balloon that I'd be blowing about in the wind up there. I mean, good Lord, we're just hanging in this, this basket underneath this big you know, sack in the sky. And when we got up there, I was absolutely shocked. It was as perfectly still as it is for us sitting in this room right now. And I just was not prepared for that. And I thought about that, and all of a sudden it just dawned on me. Oh, we're being blown by the wind. Same direction, same speed. Everything in the gondola is completely still. I wasn't prepared for that. This is sort of the idea. When we start to understand what the word is all about, when we start to understand what Jesus' way is all about, when we start to flow with the wind and breath of the Spirit, the Ruha in Aramaic, there is this effortless action. We don't feel like we're always fighting. We don't feel like we're always striving. We don't feel like we're pounding our heads against the wall. There is a movement within us which is in concert with the movement of God and the movement of the cosmos around all of that to be able to start to see life this way to be able to flow with life this way is actually the rebirth that Jesus is speaking of. To be cognizant of this, to be aware of this. And this Lent, what we're trying to do is we're exploring how do we prepare for such a rebirth? How do we prepare for such an awakening, reawakening, a rebirth, this new life that Jesus is talking about. This new life that Easter Sunday, Resurrection Day is all about. How do we prepare for it? How do we go this? And we've been talking about over the last few weeks the 40-ness. Okay, Lent is 40 days. Okay, technically it's 46, but the church doesn't count the Sunday, so it's still 40 days, all right? And this 40-ness, wherever you see 40 in the Bible, it is always talking about this time of testing and challenge into a rebirth, an initiation into a rebirth. You know, Nina pointed out, you know, it's no accident that the human gestational period is 40 weeks, right? Really, a better way to look at it is because of the biological fact that a woman carries her child for 40 weeks before she gives birth, that it's no accident that the ancient symbolic meaning was 40 as a time for trial and testing into rebirth. These things have these connections. You know? The ancient peoples lived this reality and then expressed it symbolically in their language and in their numbers. And so here's this 40, this 40 days that we have, that we're halfway through right now. This is the fourth Sunday of the six in Lent. How do we use this time? How do we use this 40-ness so that we can prepare to be able to see what Jesus is really presenting for us. If we can prepare our hearts, if we can prepare our spirits, this Easter can be something really more significant. It can be a preparation into this. And so what we've been doing is taking scriptural passages from the Holy Week liturgy. 
And using those as touch points, using those as, as illustration points for how we can go about this process of preparation for new life. And the first one was we used the, uh, the story of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, where the people are yelling and screaming and the authorities are telling Jesus, make them stop, this is inappropriate. And Jesus says, even if you could make them stop, even the rocks and the stones would cry out. Here's this idea that Paul calls constant prayer. Prayer without ceasing. Not a prayer of words, not a prayer of intellectual understanding, but a prayer of constant awareness, constant consciousness of God's presence, of our presence with each other. And so here's this practice of presence. Here's this practice of awareness. We had mindfulness exercises. We talked about centering prayer. We talked about meditation. We talked about ways that we can go about during this period, this intense 40, of practicing awareness, practicing the constant prayer to bring us up to a new level of seeing what's going on. Then we talked about the story on Fig Monday of Jesus both cleansing the temple and cursing the fig tree. And this was the image of him overturning the tables, overturning the status quo, taking a look at what was supposed to be nurturing, what was supposed to be sustaining in his people's lives that had become barren, had become just a den of thieves, just another piece of commerce. And here's Jesus challenging the status quo, overturning the tables. As our awareness begins to grow, it's going to point out what it is that we already think we know, what we already think we believe. Are we prepared to challenge that? Are we prepared to overturn our own tables, to let go of the death grip that we have on old ideas so that something new can flow in? And with God, there's always something new. Every circuit we take of letting go of old ideas to bring in the new breath of spirit is only going to be followed by another circuit and another circuit. So to practice awareness, to be willing to challenge, overturn your tables, let go of your old ideas, were two of the Sundays that we took. And here we are today. So what I want to do today is ask the question, you know, what do we come to see when we start to become aware and cleansed of the things that we are clinging to? What is this new vista that's going to be presented to us? What is it that we can look at that's going to change basically everything in our lives. And here's where I wanted to go back to Taoism for a second, to Chuang Tzu, who was one of the students of Lao Tzu, who was the, the founder of the Taoist school. And he has a short little, I guess you would call it an essay, called Autumn Floods, and I don't know if any of you have read it, but it is an amazing little piece. If you get a chance, just look it up on the internet. But in China, it's the time of the autumn floods. It's that season during the year when the rains come, kind of the monsoons, right? And the river is being flooded by all of the water that's coming from the land, and the spirit of the river is feeling joyful and completely full of himself because his banks have receded so far. He has, his, has widened his path so far, as the text says, you can't tell a horse from a cow on the opposite side. And so he's saying, all of creation is gathered into myself as he flows down the stream until he hits the ocean and he sees the limitless sea and he feels foolish. 
because here he thought he was all that, and then he sees this vast expanse of water which has absolutely no boundaries, and he realizes how insignificant he really is. And it's at that moment that the spirit of the ocean speaks to the spirit of the river, and you can follow along if you want in your inserts, and he says, the spirit of the ocean says to the river, now that you have emerged from your narrow sphere and have seen the great ocean, you know your own significance, and I can speak to you of great principles. I love that. The moment of our greatest fullness is also the moment of our greatest self-deception. When that empties out, when we hit the shores and we realize how much more there is out there, that's the moment that we can be taught. That's the moment that we can be spoken to of great principles. What is this Lent all about? It used to be just a deprivation as penance for sin. I'm going to give this up. I'm going to give that up. Now we're talking about, let's turn this around. Let's have it be a deprivation, like a sensory deprivation, to turn down the noise, to turn down all of the stuff. Why? So that we can hit the ocean and emptied of all that we think we know and all that we think we are. We can be spoken to of great principles by the Spirit of God. That's what we're headed for right here. And then the spirit of the ocean says, you cannot speak of ocean to a well frog, the creature of a narrower sphere. And you cannot speak of ice to a summer insect, the creature of a season. You see how that works? The insect only lives those few precious weeks of summer. How is it going to conceive of ice? The frog swims and croaks within this little narrow cylinder, you know, with that sphere of light that alternates between light and dark above, how in the world can it conceive of something as vast and limitless as ocean? And so I ask the question in the fifth way, then how do you speak of perfect love to a human being, the creature of a broken heart? And if you follow Chuang Tzu's logic here, think about it. We are being asked by the Gospels. We are being asked by Jesus to consider the Father as perfect love. Not that he does perfect love, that he is perfect love. That there is nothing else that you can ever get from the Spirit of God except this perfect oneness. And yet, what have we experienced in our lives? Life is pretty difficult, wouldn't you say? Life is pretty hard, wouldn't you say? How many times have you been abandoned? How many times have you been neglected? How many times have you been abused? Now, as a pastor, I get to you know, I get kind of a window into people's lives at times. And so I see what's going on. I see the financial difficulties, the marital difficulties. I see the abuse. I see all the things that we are so afraid of. And then I experience them in my own lives. I am not immune, of course. We have to go through all of this difficulty as a human being, and yet we're being asked to, (laughs) what, apprehend something, connect with something that is as far out of our sphere, frame of reference, our experience, as ice is to a summer insect, as ocean is to the well frog. How are we going to do that? This life that we're lived asked to accept perfect love is just like the frog trying to accept ocean. How can we heal? How can we rise above the lip of our wells and get that first glimpse of another there out there 
a limitless ocean, something that can give us a sense that this could really be true. This is something that I can stake my life on. This is something that I can risk taking a step in this direction. How are we going to get there? But I wanted to take another scriptural passage, and this time it's going to be from Monday Thursday. Ever, ever heard of Monday Thursday before? It is another, it's the Thursday of Holy Week. Monday comes from the Latin mandatum novum, which means a new commandment. It deals, the scripture deals with the Last Supper. And so we're going to be dealing with John 13 here. And Jesus does three things at the Last Supper. He institutes the Eucharist. He washes his disciples' feet, and he gives them this new commandment. And there are these three things. And so the church picked up on the new commandment. And so Monday is just the old English kind of uh, translation of mandatum. So Monday, Thursday deals with these scriptures, these passages. And so if we take a look, what did Jesus do? What's going on? Let's take a look at John 13, starting right at verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments And taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel which he was girded. And so he came to Simon Peter and he said to him, Simon said to Jesus, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, What I do you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. And Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Gotta love Peter, right? Impetuous Peter. But it's hard to understand his reaction here for us as modern Westerners. What is it that he's reacting to? Why is this such a big deal for Peter? We need to take a closer look at foot washing in the, in the ancient East. You know, there, the, there's... Parts of Semitic culture, ancient Semitic culture, that we just don't understand anymore. And so if we can get back into that mindset, find out what it was that Peter was reacting so viscerally to, maybe we can start to understand the depth of the message that Jesus is giving by doing what he did on Monday, Thursday. First of all, foot washing was a symbol of servitude in that culture. And scripture bears that out. Even if you take a look at uh, Psalm 60 at verse 8, Moab is my wash basin. Moab was a a country that was uh, coming up against Israel. Moab is my wash basin. Upon Edom, I toss my sandals. This idea of feet, you know, the shoes and the sandals of this time, they're made of either wood or animal skins. They were open-toed. All the, the the streets and the avenues were dirt, and people were walking constantly because usually they weren't riding. Have you ever walked in sandals or flip-flops over dirt, what do your feet look like by the time you get home? They're literally black. This was a daily experience for these people. Their feet were black with the dirt of just walking and the dust of the, of the streets. 
in their open-toed shoes. And so this is what their reality is. It represents everything that is unclean in that agricultural society. The foot to these Semitic peoples was the lowest part of the body, the dirtiest part of the body, and was always unclean. And even in Arab culture today, remember when, uh, when uh, Saddam Hussein came down and the people pulled down his statue? Do you remember that in the news? I don't know, some of you are too young. All the people were pounding the statue, especially the head of the statue with their shoes. And we're watching this thing. That is so weird. What are they doing? That is the greatest insult that you can give someone. If you just sit with crossed ankle and your soul is pointing at someone, that's a huge insult. You would never do that in that culture. The feet are still considered dirty. You know, you walk on them. And so here is this idea with the Jews that you always had to wash. The shoes were left outside when you entered a home. And there was always a wash basin ready so that you could wash before you entered a house, before you had meals, before you went to bed. The priest had their ablutions, which is a fancy word for saying they did all their ceremonial washing before every priestly function that they engaged in. This washing was absolutely central to Jewish life and to their purity codes. Now the host would be what was it what would be the word obligated by Mideastern hospitality to provide the guests with water as they entered his or her house. There was a basin, there was a towel, and there was oils for them to anoint themselves with, and it was a great insult if they didn't provide that. If you remember the story about Simon and the, the woman who was the greatest sinner in her village, when Jesus comes, he is not given any of these opportunities to wash. She comes in with the perfume and her tears and washes. But Jesus was insulted by not having this. And he calls Simon, the Pharisee, out on it. When I came into the house, you didn't give me these things, but look what she's doing. And he's pointing again toward the idea of gratitude in that particular story. But it is reinforcing this idea of what's going on. In Jewish law, a host could order a slave to wash his guest's feet, but not a Jewish slave, only a Gentile slave. Washing the feet was even considered too low, too menial for Jewish slaves to perform. Rabbinical law coded that wives should wash their husbands' hands and face and feet, but it was as an act of devotion. And no matter how many servants they had, it was an act of devotion to the husband. And the host, if there was a deep enough love, a deep enough affection or devotion for the guest, could also wash the guest's feet in those occasions, but it was rarely done. This is a big deal. And wait, there's more. (laughs) The ancient Hebrews would never expose their skin. That was considered indecent. That was considered humiliating. That was considered a shameful thing. It was taboo in, in the book of Leviticus. If you remember the Noah story, where Noah gets drunk, you all know that story? Did you ever know Noah got drunk in the Bible? Actually, you got some reading to do. There's some great stories. You ought to go get to crack and read. Go for it. You know, After the flood, Noah plants his grapes and makes his wine and he gets completely blottoed in his tent and somehow finds himself naked in the tent. And his son, he's got three sons, Ham, Shef, and and Japhet. And uh, Ham sees him, goes in there, and then comes back out and tells his brothers about it. And apparently it was amusing to him. 
But there was such shame attached to this. What the other two boys do, Shem and Japheth, they put a cloak over their shoulders and they back into the tent because Noah, their father's already passed out. They back into the tent and they drop the cloak on him and then walk back out, never having seen him. That's how sacred this idea of modesty codes were in Jewish law. And of course, when Noah comes to and the next morning, he curses Ham and raises his other two sons up, and so there's that too. But think about now. Hopefully, this is starting to bring the full shocking brunt of what Jesus has done here on this Last Supper with his friends and bring it into focus for us as modern Westerners. Think about it. As Jesus' popularity was growing, right, and the pinnacle of that is Palm Sunday, when he re-enters the, the, the holy city and everybody is going nuts and they're saying, Hoshiana, save us now. They're calling him the son of David. They're calling him Mashiach, which is why the, the authorities were just going ballistic. But as his popularity is growing, the disciples are starting to smell some blood in the water here. They're starting to say, okay, he really is the Messiah. He really is going to act. He really is going to institute his kingdom, which they were still understanding as an earthly kingdom, as a political kingdom that was going to reestablish sovereignty for Israel and kick out the Roman occupation. And they're fighting over position. You get these stories leading up to Holy Week of all the disciples jockeying and sending one... uh, a, group, a couple of brothers send their mother to Jesus to petition for him to be able to have them sit on his right hand and his left hand. So they're jockeying for position. They still don't get what Jesus is trying to put across to them. And so here is Jesus performing the most disgusting, the most menial task that even Jewish slaves didn't have to perform. The dirtiest task imaginable in that culture. And not only does he do this, but he strips in order to do it. He takes off his cloak, goes down to his loincloth, and just wraps a towel around his hips. It's unimaginable. They would have all been dumbfounded sitting there. Peter is the only one who was impetuous enough to act on it, but they all would have had the same reaction. We have to try to get into the mindset to grasp what Jesus is talking about. Why would he do this? Why would he do such a thing? being their leader. Take a look at verse 12. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments back on again and reclined at the table, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. For all the years that they had walked with him, they still didn't understand. They still didn't get it. Jesus needed to slap them up the side of the head one more time to try to get them. Can you see, you know, They hadn't grasped what he was about. But the question is, have we? Have we grasped it? Do we really understand how deep this particular rabbit hole goes? Do we really understand what Jesus is trying to get across to us? Think about it. What do you aspire to in this life? What do you value in this life? Physically and spiritually. Would we really value any leader 
who actually acted like Jesus? Would we do that? Think about it. If you came across a leader who was sitting in a bar, drinking, laughing, eating with prostitutes, with, uh, I don't know, you start to fill in the blanks here, felons, gang members, tax collectors, yeah, they don't have the same cachet now that they did in the first century, you know? But all the dregs of society, what would you think about that person? If this leader that you were trying to follow consistently turned down power that was offered to him or to her, consistently turned down the opportunity to be an influencer, to influence, to change things, and embarrassed you with undignified acts, playing with children in the street, hanging out with these crate unwashed, you know? What if Jesus, or what if this leader, not Jesus, but this leader was hanging out with Republicans or Democrats or Trump supporters? You know, how would you feel about that? Would you still be able to follow? Would you be able to go where this person is, is going? Think hard about this. What if this leader chose consistently to remain unassuming and embarrassed you? with his or her actions. See, when we really get down to it, when we really get into our heart of hearts, we still have this huge bias to what is spectacular, to what is powerful, to what is relevant, which are the three temptations that Jesus put down in that 40 days in the wilderness. That time of trial and testing, he put down the need to be spectacular jump down from the pinnacle of the temple and let the angels carry you up. To be powerful, worship me and I will give you control of all the kingdoms of the world. To be relevant, turn these stones into bread. Jesus spent his Lent putting those things in their proper positions, realizing that though, yes, those are the compulsions of the human condition, this is not what drives me anymore. I am one with the Father. And yet in our heart of hearts, how much does that motivate us still? We say, oh, if I could just walk with Jesus for a week, I would be able to get this. His first followers walked with him for years and they still didn't understand. It is not as easy as we think to put these things down. They still continue to drive us long after we think that we have put a stake through the heart of that particular thing. How, does we cha- how do we change? How does this change in our lives? Not until we start to become aware of what drives us. In real time, in the moments of our lives, we see how our need to be spectacular and powerful and relevant changes the way that we relate to each other, changes the choices that we make, changes the language that we use. And when we become aware of it, then are we willing to challenge those beliefs also in real time? and do something different, to overturn the tables willingly of the status quo inside of what really motivates us to become aware how continuous prayer, continuous awareness of presence, continuous awareness of the interaction of our relationships as they flow by us moment by moment, and then are willing to confront the things that are continuing 
to keep us in this place of separation, to keep us in this place of damaged and compromised relationship. Do you see how it starts to work? When we start to become resensitized to the way that it all really is, the way that this life is really constructed, when we can start to look at life the way kids look at life, uncritically, just openly, when we are willing to see that what Jesus is bringing us is a completely different way of living life, that takes all the ways that we manage and scheme and and work through our lives and turns them upside down and inside out and back to front, if we're not willing to live through that paradox and overturn those tables, then we're not going to be able to go where Jesus is going to build the awareness, to confront what is really driving us, and then to move into this place where washing feet becomes the most significant act that is possible between human beings. To recognize this. Finally, Jesus at John 15 says, Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. This is my commandment. This is the mandatum novum, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends. If you do it, I command you. This is what he's talking about. Laying it all down for anyone who is in our path. That's our neighbor, our kariba, whoever is in our path, whoever is near and then, if you're really ready, if you're really willing, the lightning bolt's going to hit. Because if Jesus is a foot washer, if Jesus is this unassuming servant leader, and further, if Jesus is one with the Father, then guess what? If A equals B and B equals C, the Father is a foot washer too. The creator of the universe is a servant to us is created. If your mind isn't start to blow in a puff of purple smoke like that commercial, then, then you're not considering this is absolutely mind-blowing. The Father, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, is washing my feet, is serving me, exists for that pleasure to serve creation this is something that we need to prepare for. I can say the words, but I remember the moment, finally, years of kind of going down this path when it suddenly started to click. It's like, it's like something shifts on the foundations of the earth almost. It's, it's, it's incredible. I wanted to read one little bit um, from The Fifth Way. And this is just a moment with my son. And just take a listen. We'll finish with this. I took my two-year-old son on a walk through a nature reserve near our house one Sunday afternoon. Couched way down in the sling of the stroller, he looked small and far away. All I could see of him was the wind ruffling through the fine hair on the top of his head as I alternately watched the landscape and the footpath 
making sure I was guiding the wheels over the safest, safest and smoothest route. Moving deeper into the hills, the path narrowed as mustard plants overgrew along the sides, rising chest and neck high, covered with their tiny yellow flowers. I could see the path curving off and disappearing into the overgrowth then reappearing further down the hill. In the middle distance below us, there were housing tracks, the parking lot, a road alive with traffic, and with the far distant mountains as backdrop, all the familiar sights and sounds of my world aligned in a comforting glance. The path had grown narrow enough that the stroller was now parting the mustard stalks as we pushed through. And as I looked down at my son, I realized that he had gone unnaturally quiet and still. I could sense his focus and concentration right through the top of his head, and I looked down the path toward what may have been holding his attention when a sudden thought struck me. I bent way down, almost doubled over, and held my face at the same level as his, continuing to push through what magically had changed from mustard bushes to tall trees with their yellow tops high over my head. The whole scene instantly transformed from a narrow footpath on a nearby hill to a mysterious road deep in the forest. We could have been hundreds of miles from the nearest sign of anything that seemed familiar and safe. I could imagine we were traveling a hobbit road through Middle Earth, that horses with armed riders would come thundering around the next curve at any moment, filling the scene with flying clumps of earth, flared nostrils, and the glint of hardened metal. By simply lowering my position, I had left the world with which I was so familiar and comfortable and had entered a new one, the world of my child, a world viewed from only three feet off the ground where even a rutted footpath could hold any promise or possibility. I had been given just a glimpse of whatever it was my boy was seeing in all its newness and mystery, but it was enough to begin to understand. Being reborn tears us from everything we know and think we understand. It takes us from all the comforting and familiar things we have piled up around ourselves in the effort to feel bounded and held and in control. It seems to require so much of us, so much loss, that we resist as long as we can. But rebirth doesn't take anything from us that we actually possess and offers back everything we already do. If we can find our way, not to simply give up, stop resisting, but to truly surrender and take the first step, our rebirth will open the rest of the way to immense new experience, full of the adventure and exhilaration of possibilities we didn't even know existed. From the other side of his rebirth, Yeshua looks up at us from the standing height of a child, from the kneeling height of a servant at our feet, saying that what he has done we can do, and greater things than these. There he is, way down there, with the wind combing through his hair, beckoning with his broad, blinding smile, and speaking with the unmistakable ring of the truth that makes us free. Because in all our powerlessness, there is one power we do possess, the power to choose to hitch our stroller to the power greater than ourselves the only power that can take us where we really want to go. As creatures of a broken heart, the truth that the way to healing is actually down and not up, a letting go 
rather than an acquisition, an admission of powerlessness, a lowering of imagined position, is just too frightening to accept as long as we believe we have any power to defend. But when the first wall comes down, and instead of the hordes of the enemy we have feared so long, we are greeted with a limitless view of ocean, we are at first still terrified with the dawning of our own insignificance. But if we will stay on that shore, not run back to the fortification of womb and well, our eyes will slowly adjust to the brilliance of the light, and we will stand blinking and squinting and eventually smiling with all the other powerless ones who have come to know that they are finally on their way home. Here's what Lent can teach us, this time of Lent that we're in right now. As we deprive ourselves, quiet down, lower our point of view in this time of Lent, we can begin to learn that if you really want to find Jesus, you really want to see Jesus, the real Jesus, the one that, not the one that we have imagined we know, but the real Jesus, that you have to look down and not up. That is so difficult for us to think. We have to look down, not up, because Jesus is on his knees washing our feet, loving us by serving us, laying himself down for each one of us. Can we even get beyond the blasphemy of what that sounds like? But if we keep looking, if we will power through that resistance, we will begin to realize that we will never see farther than what we can see from a kneeling height. Let's pray. Father, it hurts our minds and our hearts to say that you are our servant, but it seems like that's what you're trying to show us, that you do serve us, even as you are our God and our provider, and you are the beginning and ending of everything. It is so difficult for us to hold that paradox in one embrace. Help us to understand how much pleasure you take in serving us that it is your will to do so. It is your purpose to serve anyone, everyone, and anything in your path. Help us to understand that deeply enough that we want it for ourselves, that we begin to take pleasure in service, in lowering our position and our point of view and seeing what is really important in this life. Help us to value that, Lord. Help us to want that. Help us to see who you really are so that we can identify and become the same. Father, we love you. We want to do that better each day. Thank you for loving us perfectly. Help us to understand that that's even possible. And never let us forget that we can only love because you did all of this first. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand.